0: Keep reminding you throughout the month of May, we're still collecting for the food drive for Salvation Army. The list is on the information table. Thank you for being generous already with with that. That's uh, a good way to glorify the Lord. Brian, I'm putting these paper clips. They're up here. I'm putting them in my pocket. I will not be playing with the paper clips. Galatians chapter 3. In a few moments, I want to reiterate a few things from last night. And I'm considering doing an exegesis of Galatians, but I have to get far enough away from other good commentaries I've read. Otherwise, you get kind of. Uh, a rehashing of what you've already heard other other men say, and I have the Holy Spirit directing me in some different directions from others that I'm studying. So let's uh, please keep that endeavor in prayer for the future. But right now we're going to go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, and possibly reiterate some things from last night first. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We pray that you'll illuminate us, enlighten our eyes as to the person of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his magnificence, so that we can see clearer and clearer the apocalyptic revelation of him that was seen by the apostles and seen by Paul specifically. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. I included a silent prayer in there for certain critics of my shirts and it was based on their jealousy. So I prayed that God would forgive them of their jealousies. The main nail that I wanted to drive last night, that's from Ecclesiastes 12 if you're wondering about that analogy or that metaphor. The main nail that I wanted to drive last night is that when the gospel was preached in advance to Abraham by the scripture, as galatians three eight says it was pronounced as an unconditional promise with a universalistic application. The terse expression of the gospel is quote in you, God, the scripture speaking the scripture personified here, even as the word is personified in John one one the scripture personified spoke to Abraham, and it said or he said in you all the nations or all the gentiles will be blessed and that's what Paul called the gospel preached in advance and he develops the scripture foresaw it says that the gentiles would be rectified or delivered liberated from slavery to sin by faith or from faithfulness we have that famous phrase ek pistios, used in Galatians. Paul uses a little different nuances when he's teaching in Galatians as he does when he's teaching in Romans. So you can't just have a what's called a parallelomania and just go, well, this is what he meant in Romans, this is what he meant in Galatians, because there's a different exigence for why he writes Galatians. There's a different reason he's writing to a certain critical experience and emergency, really. Ek this is but this is in this case, this is the key phrase that we could translate as from faithfulness or from a source of fidelity. And so the scripture foresaw that the Gentiles, it doesn't say some Gentiles, it says the Gentiles would be rectified. Justified is a word that's not really that good rectified is better it's Lou Martin I'm still not happy with that completely but to be delivered from or liberated from slavery to sin is what it means the scripture foresaw that the Gentile world the pagan world would be rectified by faith or ek pistios, from faithfulness now the question is what faith or what faithfulness and the answer which we've already seen, I think, unveiled, but will become more and more clear in this very chapter, Galatians 3, is the faith or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. In fact, the attention will be drawn throughout this chapter from Abraham, away from Abraham, from Abraham to his seed. As this unfolds, you see Paul more saying, Well, the promise was made to Abraham, but it was also made, and more importantly, more significantly, made to your seed, and to your seed. And then he develops that into the seed being singular, and that singular seed being Christ. So the gospel is announcing, in its terse expression, an unconditional promise. It does not say, in you, or even better in your seed Christ all the gentiles will be blessed if they meet certain conditions it simply says all the gentiles will be blessed in your seed and this gives birth to a phrase that Paul uses 160 times in the epistles in Christ and Cristo and Cristo salvation is us being in Christ that's salvation and so it's a Christological doctrine more than a soteriological doctrine, ironically. Our salvation is more of a Christological than a soteriological doctrine. So the question is, what faith here, or whose faithfulness, and the answer, which we've given already, but are more and more making clear in this chapter, is the faith of Jesus Christ. So the attention is drawn away from Abraham, so we can assume and I think we can assume correctly and safely without danger and without peril that the teachers that and entered into an incursion into the Gentile Galatian churches and disrupted them emphasized the history of Abraham and Paul goes right along the same lines and talks about Abraham but then he draws attention away from Abraham to Abraham's seed which is Christ. He's focusing on his focus, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. I determined to know nothing, he said to the Corinthians, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. What I've seen is an analogous pattern in Hebrews 11 and 12, those two chapters. In Hebrews 11, attention is drawn to the faith of certain ancient biblical personages. They were called elders by it, faith or faithfulness the elders obtained a good report. And so in Hebrews 11, attention is drawn to the faith of certain ancient elders, men and women, both. And then the attention is withdrawn to the, from them rather drastically to the source and perfecter of faith, namely Jesus, and at the, in the same breath, To his endurance of the cross. In Hebrews chapter 12. and verse 2. In fact the word is pretty dramatic. It's afhora'o. Which means look away to. Look away from all these elders. And their faith. To Jesus who is the source. And the perfecter. Of faith. Who endured the cross. And not only is the cross mentioned in Hebrews. But the resurrection. Ascension. And enthronement. Who not only endured the cross, but was exalted to the right hand of God the Father. In other words, our attention is drawn away from the faith in which these elders participated. And please note that word in its various forms, participate, participated in participation. That's going to be a key word. In other words, our attention is drawn away from the faith in which these elders participated, Hebrews 11, to the source, which is Jesus' faithfulness to the extent of death, followed by resurrection, exaltation, and enthronement. So I would say this is a familiar pattern. And, as far as bibliology goes, as a category, you may say that the entirety of Paul, that's all his epistles, and of the New Testament for that matter, and of the Old Testament rightly understood, rightly read. When the attention is drawn to the Lord, the Old Testament is understood. 2 Corinthians 3.14 says, they read the scriptures still to this day, but when the heart turns to the Lord, then the veil is lifted from the Old Testament to see an apocalyptic vision of Jesus Christ. And I'm arguing in his universally saving significance. So this is a familiar pattern. We may say that the entirety of Paul in the old Testament, as well as the new is drawing the attentiveness of its readers to Christ the Lord. And that's what we do. Those who preach, those who teach, we preach Christ Jesus and not ourselves. And We identify ourselves as your servants, your genuine servants. The word slave there is an intensification of servants, so it means your genuine servants for Christ's sake, on behalf of Christ. But I want to drive this nail a little deeper, and to drive it all the way in is up to a future commentary on Galatians, which I I don't know whether the Lord will direct me in that or someone else in the future. To drive this nail even deeper... I want to emphasize two things about the scriptures pre proclamation of the gospel to Abraham first, and this will draw us back to the bridge from unconditional to universal grace. First, that gospel was an unconditional promise in you, Abraham, clarifying later that is in your seed Christ all the nations will be blessed we're going to find that that includes Israel because even though Israel is select and elect out from the nations Israel is still in itself a nation and so all the nations even as Paul makes clear in Romans eleven I'm speaking of a mystery and if you don't know this mystery you're, you're in danger of speaking in a conceited way in a way that seems to know something but doesn't really know it, that the mystery is that all the fullness of the Gentiles must come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Meaning all Israel, Israel as a nation, is included in all the nations who in Christ Jesus will be blessed. What's the blessing? It's the spirit the spirit of Christ. It's the spirit of the son sent into their hearts. It's a participation with the triune God. It's a participation or shared existence with Christ. That's ultimately what the blessing is that was promised to Abraham and to his seed. So to drive the nail further of that gospel that was preached in advance to Abraham. First, it's an unconditional promise. Second, It involves blessing for all the nations or all the Gentiles. As the chapter develops and as we see in the development of Romans 9 through 11 in another way. All the nations includes Israel as a nation. So in this way both Jews and Gentiles having been imprisoned by God's wisdom. God's wisdom imprisoned both in disobedience Jews and Gentiles. So that he could liberate them by his mercy and have mercy on all, Romans eleven thirty two. Now, I'm approaching this subject from a deliberately radical standpoint, and I have a radical belief in this. I, I am a radical theologian in that regard, but I'm doing it in such a way that even if you choose to moderate this radical position, we still have fellowship. In other words, like Richard Bauckham said, if you look at Revelation long enough, you're going to see it in a more universalistic light than you saw it in before. Maybe you'll not see and become a convinced universalist. That's not what I'm trying to do. But maybe you'll see things in a much more universalistic light in the light of Christ. And so it doesn't matter whether you're a radical like I am or whether you're a moderator or a moderate in that position. We can still have fellowship so we might maintain unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Whether or not you adhere to the universal saving significance of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, I'm speaking to people that have been here for a while, maybe all the way through Revelation, maybe into Paul, maybe even before in the Gospel of John, whether or not you adhere to the universal saving significance of the faithfulness of Christ, you should certainly by now If you've been attentive, you should certainly be encouraged to be a little more universalistic in your orientation. And I'll tell you why as we go. Now that the faith or the faithfulness being spoken of here is that of Christ is shown most dramatically by the equating of this faith or faithfulness with Christ's death the equating of this faithfulness with Christ's death. Remember Romans 5, nine, therefore being justified by his blood. How much more can we be assured of being saved from wrath by his life? We have already received the reconciliation. Let me say that again, because it's a difficult thing. I'm developing some difficult doctrines in the midweek here. The faith or the faithfulness being spoken of, especially right in Galatians 3.8 as it is introduced, is that of Christ is shown most dramatically by the equating of that faith or faithfulness with Christ's death for us. More specifically, with his becoming a curse for us on behalf of us. Both the faithfulness of Christ... That's his own personal fidelity to the father's intention to save the world. And among other things, both the faithfulness of Christ and our corporate participation in that faithfulness certainly trumps the human act of circumcision or multiple human acts of law observance. Obviously that's the case In Galatians, both the faithfulness of Christ and our participation in that fidelity certainly trumps the human act of circumcision or multiple human acts of law observance, which are being recommended by not by Judaism, but by this offshoot of Judaism, Jewish Christian missionaries who misrepresent both Christianity and Judaism. Judaism is not a legalistic system. That's a misinterpretation of what Paul is saying. Judaism involved a doctrine of grace. It involved God as a do- as a God of grace, but that we can deal with that on another occasion. Now, again, the faithfulness of Christ trumps the work of the law because the faithfulness of Christ culminated in his death for sins. And ended the law's ability to enslave or to curse. The law only had that effect of cursing and enslaving as it was seized or hijacked by sin, the suprahuman thing or even personal thing that we could call sin. What the scripture Preached or what the scriptures preaching of the gospel in advance to Abraham, what it did not announce was just exactly how the nations or the Gentiles would be blessed. That is through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Old Testament makes clear, if you, if you see it in the right light, Jesus even said, ought not Christ to have suffered. The message as a whole you can find in the scripture that Christ had to suffer To enter his glory. And we'll be getting into that. When I get into the Petrine connection again. But now we're ready. For Galatians chapter 3. and verse 10. I just wanted to hammer that nail a little deeper. About unconditionality. And universality. Of the gospel. Galatians 3.10. For those who are of the works of the law. He's describing a category of people. Ex. Ergon. That's E-X-E-R-G-O-N. It's antagonistic. Here's the dialectic of contradictories, an irreconcilable dialectic of contradictories. Those who are of works versus those who are of or from faithfulness. For those who are of the works of the law, ex ergon namu, namu, the law, are under the power of the curse. Because as it is written, this is my translation, because as it is written or as it stands written, cursed is everyone who does not continue doing everything that is written in the book of the law. Now, Paul goes right into the territory of the teachers here in Deuteronomy twenty-seven, 26. They're the ones that brought up the curse language. They're the ones that brought up the curse. They're the ones at first who brought up Abraham being circumcised in Genesis 17. So Paul takes his readers back deeper into the history of Abraham. And he was called while he was still an idolater, even as Paul was called while he was still a murderer of Christians and an unadmitted idolater. And the promise was made to him then, made to Abraham then. And Abraham, God recognized Abraham's fidelity as a participation with his own son's faithfulness 13 years before he ever submitted to circumcision or circumcised the members of his household and the slaves of his household. So this time Paul goes back deeper into the Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, and he has another curse verse that he wants to bring up. When he does this, he begins to unfold something called the two voices of the law. There is the cursing, enslaving voice, and there is the voice of the law called the promise. And he's talking about the gospel being strictly the promise because the curse was removed from the cursing voice of the law. When, and I think that happened when Jesus said, to tell us "Die." He shut the mouth of the cursing part of the law because he took the law away from its hijackers, which is sin, and the flesh. The law was weak through its being co-opted by the flesh or controlled by sin. And when Jesus Christ died, he fulfilled the law in one sentence, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so he wrested the law away from its hijacker, which is sin, and he took the law into his own hands so that when we walk in the spirit, we fulfill the law of Christ again. That's coming up. Be patient. You have plenty of time to realize these things. I'm just introducing them. They're notes in a symphony until they reach a crescendo. Then you'll understand them. So that's the method of the Holy Spirit that I've been under for a while. So the teachers introduced this verse into their argument, into their nomistic Gospel, by nomistic, N-O-M-I-S-T-I-C, I simply mean a gospel rooted in works of the law, namas. Paul knows and conveys the truth that the law curses and enslaves only as it has been hijacked by the power of sin, capital S-I-N, and utterly weakened by the power of the flesh, capital F-L-E-S-H, Romans 8.2. So at the cross, Christ rested the law, that's W-R-E-S-T-E-D, from sin and took it into his own hands, fulfilling it. Don't think that I've come to destroy the law, but to fulfill, Matthew 5.17. This is the positive side of Christ's death. The negative side, which is just as important, is that Christ became a curse On our behalf. So once again Paul goes back as he did in Genesis with Abraham, he goes back farther than the teachers, this time in Deuteronomy, to show that Christ ended the curse of the law by becoming a curse for, and indeed, listen carefully, not only curse for, but as a curse as all of humanity. In Galatians three eleven. Let's look at it, Galatians 3.11. Now it's evident that nobody is, I'll use the word justified. Martin uses the word, that's M-A-R-T-Y-N if you're looking him up. Rectified. So we'll use rectified this time. Now it is evident that nobody is rectified or set right in God's eyes by the law. So this is negatively, it's an echo of Psalm 143.2, which is also echoed into Romans 3.20. Because remember, the the psalmist said, do not enter into judgment with your servant, because I know that no one can be justified in your sight at all. And because Paul knew that that meant by no means, by no human action, he added by the works of the law. Because if no one can be justified in God's sight, then certainly no one can be justified in God's sight by works that they do in the flesh. So, now it is evident, Paul said, that nobody is rectified or righteous in God's eyes by the law. Because, positively he now uses the verse that becomes later on his thesis Prophetic verse, Habakkuk 2, four Because the righteous one will live ek pistios. The righteous one will live ek pistios, which is from the source of faithfulness. Now, Paul will exploit this scriptural echo or illusion and make it the thesis verse for all of Romans later on. He's kind of doing some things now that he's going to put into action in a different way in Romans and he's going to develop it in a much more theological way. But he's going to exploit this scriptural echo from Habakkuk 2.4 or we could call it an allusion to a verse and make it the thesis verse for all of Romans in what he explicates of what he calls my gospel. Romans 2.16 Romans 16.25, he explicitly calls it my gospel, not because he's the author of it, but because he appropriated it from Jesus Christ, from God who revealed his son to him in Galatians 1.12, Compared with Ephesians 3.4, when Paul says, if you read and exegete my epistles, you'll come up to understand my insight into the mystery, which is all about God's son. The gospel is all about God's son, of whom the scriptures testify throughout. Most notably for Romans, and to a slightly lesser extent for Galatians, Habakkuk 2.4. A very central prophetic verse. In Romans, now listen carefully, because there's nuances here. You can't just say means the same thing in Galatians as it does in Romans, because there's a different circumstance Paul's addressing. So in Galatians, if Galatians 3.11 emphasizes the messianic interpretation of the righteous one, which is obviously Paul's interpretation of it in Romans. If Galatians 3.11 emphasizes the messianic interpretation of the righteous one, then the faithfulness is Christ's if the intention is to point to rectified sinners or people that have been placed into Christ and sanctified, then the faithfulness is still Christ's only with an emphasis on the rectified person's participation. Remember in Second Peter we found that we obtained like righteous faith, equally precious faith with the apostles. We obtained it lancano received it by lot through the righteousness of god and of jesus our lord it doesn't say we obtained righteousness through faith it says we obtained faith through god's righteousness and so we our faith is a shared participation i'm going i got a lot more to say on peter's epistles connected with paul did you if you read carefully first peter 1 1 he wrote to the galatians he wrote to galatia he wrote to jews in galatia but there was always a an overlap of epistles. Peter, whose ministry was to the uncircumcision, often wrote to Gentiles. Paul, in Romans 9 through 11, and especially in verse 11, he says, let me magnify my commission and speak to you Jews, even though my mission is to the pagans. But we're going to come into the, what I call the Petrine connection. I started it on Sunday. I had to deal with something else as the Holy Spirit directs, and so I'm going to have to deal with it again. So again, if Galatians 3:11 emphasizes the messianic interpretation of the righteous one, then the faithfulness is Christ. But if the mention the intention, as Martin thinks, Lou Martin thinks, is to point to rectified sinners or justified people, the faithfulness is still Christ's, I say, only with an emphasis on the righteous. Persons or the justified persons' participation with Christ's faithfulness, and this is seen over and against the ex ergon or rectification or justification from works as a source. Now, don't get me wrong. In Romans one seventeen, it is far more clearly intended that the righteous one is Jesus Christ, and so his faithfulness ek pistios is that by which we are delivered or saved. It's his faithfulness. That's emphatic. Peter agrees in 1 Peter 3.18. He said, he died the righteous one. So he interprets the righteous one as Jesus Christ. Christ died the righteous one for the unrighteous. And this agrees with Paul. Christ died for the ungodly. That's all of humanity with the exception of Christ. That's all in Adam who die. Christ died for them so that all could be made alive in Christ. I have something to say about the resurrection and judgment. Resurrection often means or connotes judgment. But I'm going to show you what that means. I'm going to say a sentence tonight before I finish that has the possibility of atomic shock value but because it's a connection I never saw and I'm not going to tell you which sentence it is although I may emphasize it with some volume which so you might get the hint now a lot of what I'm saying tonight I don't expect you to put together but I do expect that it will be put together by the Holy Spirit in the future as we maybe exegete these things to help us out with this now We have Galatians 2.20 to 21. That's like a saving verse in the midst of this trying to cut through all this brush with a machete, trying to make some forward progress. I keep leaning back to Galatians 2.20 and 21. It's like a saving breath of fresh air in the midst of trying to figure these things out, where Paul makes his confession as the eschatological paradigmatic human being. He's a paradigm of the eschatological human being. He was crucified with Christ, he says, which means in the language of Doug Campbell, mapped on to Christ's own history, which I agree with that. Mapped on to Christ's own history. Crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, he lives. And I would say he lives because he was also mapped on to Christ's history in resurrection. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not he, Paul says, but Christ lives in him, and the life he now lives in mortal flesh, he lives by or in participation with, we could translate, in participation with the faithfulness of the Son of God. So right there, we've got the point. I mean, he says it right there. He doesn't hint at whose faithfulness is this. It's the faithfulness of the Son of God. There's no question. So that's where I go to say, okay, that's... I'm right, we're right. We're right to have our certainty and our assurance right there. In fact, he goes on to say, in direct irreconcilable contradiction, that is, living by the faithfulness of the Son of God is directly irreconcilably contradictory to justification by the works of the law, which would make the death of Christ be nothing but an empty act, an empty gesture. That's what the false gospel is teaching that the, the death of Christ is a relatively empty gesture. That's not what we're saying because his faithfulness was to the extent of death by crucifixion, his faithfulness, his fidelity was his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion by whose obedience, the many meaning everyone we'll have justifying life. Now, one person said to me, what you should do is just say, everybody's going to be saved and then drop the mic. And that wouldn't do justice to the gospel. It wouldn't do justice to what I'm trying to teach. It wouldn't engage the text. So I don't do that. And the other couple of weeks ago, the the mic dropped and my niece said to me, That was pretty cool how you dropped the mic. And I said, I didn't drop the mic. I put the mic on the shelf and it fell because it bumped up against a cup of water. I didn't drop the mic. Because you know what that is? That's a dead metaphor, doing that drop the mic thing, like you're dramatically saying something profound. And so I'm not going to do that. I didn't drop the mic two weeks ago. I, I dropped the mic. I put the mic on the table to go leave and it fell so it sounded like I dropped the mic. I didn't do that. Mississippi. I didn't do it. So. Galatians 3.12. But. This is the adversative. Use of the word but. Which indicates the contradistinction. But the law ha namas is not from faithfulness. What he's saying is the law namas is not. It's exactly the opposite of ekpistios. The law is not ekpistios. There is no reconciliation of these two notions. This is a contradictory dialectic. But he says the law is not from faithfulness, ekpistios. Instead, Now he quotes Leviticus 18.5, probably taking it away from the teachers who also quoted it to the Galatians. Rather, instead, he says, quote, the one who does them, that's the works of the law, will live by them. That's Leviticus 18.5. They will live by them, the works of the law, not by the faithfulness of Messiah, but by their obedience to the law. And so here is the dialectic of contradictories the law is not ekpistios ekpistios or from faithfulness is in direct contradiction to ha the faithfulness of jesus christ participated in by the saints is in direct opposition to the works of the law galatians 3:13 and here's the kicker christ redeemed us from the curse of the law becoming a curse on our behalf because it is written i'm going back further than you teachers did with deuteronomy 27:26 i'm going back to deuteronomy 21:23 which already preempts the power of this for the gentiles cursed christ redeemed us from the curse of the law becoming a curse on our behalf because it is written Deuteronomy twenty one twenty three before twenty seven twenty six, cursed is everyone. The word is pas p a s that means cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. You can compare that with First Peter two twenty four. He bore our own our iniquities our sins with him on the tree. Isaiah fifty three four five and twelve are other passages you can look up. Peter preached the gospel to the circumcision, as Paul did to the pagans. And that was the agreement from the apost- apostolic leadership in the church in Jerusalem in Galatians two eight. It's the same gospel. It's salvation through the faithfulness, or also known as the grace of the Lord Jesus. Peter said it in Acts fifteen eleven. We believe that they, the Gentiles, even as we, the Jews will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Paul said the same thing. By the grace of the one man, the many are justified. Romans 5, 15 to 18, which is the heart of the heart of the heart of the matter. So there's a very strong implication here that everyone, the word everyone who hangs upon a tree is intimately connected or even identical to Christ. Listen carefully. Christ hanging on a tree. This isn't my volume. Christ, Christ hanging on the tree is identical with everyone hanging on the tree. When Christ hung on the tree, everyone hung on the tree, which means And we can verify this. Again, this is another one of those moments where you have a deep breath of fresh air. It's what I call, it's the belly breathing. You know, all of the scripture is God breathed. But if you've ever done belly breathing, you never get a full breath. And it's because you're trying to hold your stomach in. Let your stomach not be held in. And your lungs will have a lot more room. So you can breathe in a full breath. Just don't be around people because you're letting your stomach hang out. So you let your stomach, it's called belly breathing. It works. I've had times where I'm exercising, I can't get a full breath and it drives me crazy. So I just do the belly breathing. Let your your stomach drop low, your lungs get fuller. And when you take a breath, it fills all your lungs. And you do that for about 20 minutes and you're as high as a kite. But uh, that's a relaxation. I don't mean that as something you get addicted to but what i'm saying all that to say there's some verses that's like belly breathing it's inspired but it's like oh yeah that's good second corinthians 514 if one died for all then all died when christ was made a curse then all were cursed everyone hung upon the tree when christ hung upon the tree and so he took away the curse from everybody so before rejecting this interpretation which I came up with a couple of years ago before rejecting this interpretation, consider the remarkable moment in Paul's Corinthian correspondence when he declared that one, if one died, since one died for all, then all died, all died when Christ died. Realizing this, Paul underwent, I'm going to call it this, a radical epistemological reorientation. Epistemological means a way of knowing. He went through a radical reorientation about how he knew and how he sees humanity. The love of Christ now constrains me, he said, because now I see no person after the flesh. But only I see now if any man is in Christ, if any Woman is in Christ. If any person is in Christ, there's a new creation. He went underwent a radical epistemological reorientation. Now, it's important that we understand that Paul went through that because you're going through it too, or may have been through it. I've been through it in some measure, but I'm expecting more and more. It's something that we will all undergo or are undergoing as well. Once we truly appropriate the apocalyptic revelation or the vision of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance, we undergo a radical epistemological reorientation. It takes a lot of the violence out of our souls, it takes a lot of our need for anger or the need for revenge or the need for retribution out of our being. It takes prejudices and biases. And racial prejudice is right out of the picture. It it destroys them. It doesn't just say, I'm not a racist. You're not really. You're really not a racist. Because it's a radical epistemological reorientation that happens when you understand that one died for all and so all died. Now, if all died when Christ died, then that means all were mapped into his history. And if all died when he died, then what does that mean when he was raised from the dead to life? It means that in Christ, all will be made alive. But here's the point. Well, here's another point. So if all died when Christ died, then all were mapped on to his history, and all must necessarily be raised to life in and because of him. Resurrection then! is connected to judgment because in the resurrection sinners and even malevolent malefactors will be radically transformed. In John 5:28 Jesus said those that do good will be raised to life those that do evil will be raised to judgment. It's both the same thing. The life and the judgment are both the same thing. If someone lives and believes and never participates in the fidelity of Christ and never, as we would say, believes, they are resurrected and their resurrection will mean judgment because at their resurrection, they will be transformed by God's grace. That's what resurrection is. It's a judgment and it's life. It's life and it's judgment and so, again, let me say it this way. Resurrection, then, is connected to judgment because in the resurrection, sinners, and I'm talking about sinners, even the most malevolent malefactors, will be radically transformed. Those who do good, Jesus said, and it, sound, it makes you stumble a little bit if you don't understand what he's saying. Those who do good, it's John 5, 28 and 29 which means participate in Christ's fidelity, resulting in love as the fruit of the Spirit. Those are those who do good. Those who do good, he says, will be resurrected to life. Those who do evil, that means so to the flesh without exception, will be resurrected to judgment. That is, to a transformation by God's unconditional grace. That's my way of saying what Jürgen Moltmann said, the punishment for evildoers is transformation by grace. So the judgment that's connected to the resurrection of the so-called unbeliever is a judgment by which that malevolent and evil person is transformed by the grace of God. That does not have to occur in someone who's already in Christ and participating with his fidelity. Resurrection is simply a resurrection into a much higher form of human living and an immortality and incorruption. Well, for those who did not participate in Messiah's fidelity, resurrection will be a judgment because it's there that they are transformed into that resurrection life which is a judgment. How can God be a judge and a gracious God at the same time? He judges by transforming. So, Galatians 3. I'm going to say what I said again. I'm going to just, this is what I have. It's, in fact, I put it all in italics. Resurrection then is connected to judgment because in the resurrection, I'm talking about the bodily resurrection from the dead, sinners and even malevolent malefactors, I doubled up that word, M-A-L, that prefix just to emphasize the fact that there are some really, really bad actors in human history. Even malevolent malefactors will be radically transformed in the resurrection. Those who do good, or participate in Christ's fidelity resulting in love as the fruit of the spirit will be resurrected to life. Those who do evil that is so to the flesh without exception will be resurrected to judgment. And by judgment is meant a transformation by God's unconditional grace. You say, where do you find a pattern for that? Paul. Saul of Tarsus. He sees the risen Christ. He's in the height of evil. He may be the chief of sinners in the sense that he may have been the worst person that ever lived as a malevolent malefactor. He's trying to destroy the people of God, which is a dist- to destroy Jesus Christ. And everything, he's throwing everything into it. He meets Jesus Christ. What happened? He was judged, he was killed, and he was made alive. And he was transformed by God's grace. That's how God punished the evildoer against his people. He transformed him and turned him into an instrument of grace and into the master builder of the people called the church. That's God's way of doing stuff. He goes a little beyond what we think and what we do. So let's close with Galatians 3.14. So that Christ became a curse for us. So that, for this reason, to this end, so that the blessing of Abraham, which was the promise, the unconditional promise made to Abraham and to his seed, which Paul later explains, and you're going to see this, the blessing is the spirit. The promise is the promised spirit. That's why Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of my father, the promise of the spirit made to Abraham wait for that to be realized the Pentecost and that's why the scripture says you were sealed with that promised Holy Spirit the blessing that was promised to Abraham and to his seed was the Holy Spirit by which all the nations would have a participation in or a shared existence with Jesus Christ and that's it fits into the category of what we would call good news And it really kind of puts to shame some of the things that on broadcasts and in television and of televangelism and churches and on church marquees, it makes those things called the gospel not really seem to be good news. So that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles in Christ Jesus so that we... Paul says Paul's not a Gentile, but he's identifying with the Gentiles because he knows that ultimately this means everybody as we'll see Galatians. Let me just give you another hint. Galatians three, 13 and 14 tells the same story as Galatians four, three through five, one from a more Jewish, the other from a more Gentile or pagan perspective, but that's so that all the Jews and the Gentiles together Jew and Greek, Jew first and also the Greek, can be justified. As Paul said in Romans 3.30, well, then the, the, gen, the Jews are justified ek pistios from the faithfulness of Christ, and the Gentiles, they are justified diates pistios through the faithfulness of Messiah. What's the difference? There ain't none. So, that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles in Christ Jesus so that we Paul identifies himself with Gentiles here as in Galatians four, five, he identifies with Jews because in Christ Jesus, there is no Jew and there is no Greek. There is no Gentile. There is no pagan. There is no barbarian or Scythian or bond or free or male or female. So without commentary, so that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, so that we would receive the promise, listen carefully, which is the spirit, the promise, which is identical with the Holy Spirit. If you were going to be given a gift, what would be better than the gift of God himself, which is the spirit, which is not just some Holy Spirit over here. This kind of like a supernatural and a, Really important ghost a ghost but a really important ghost the Holy Ghost now We're talking about that. We're talking about the spirit of Jesus Christ Who as much as Jesus Christ's human? Nature cannot be dissociated from the crucifixion and the resurrection. We're talking about the spirit so look at And I, I said without commentary, but this is commentary so so that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles in Christ Jesus so that we would receive the promise which is the spirit through faithfulness. Dia tes pistios. Same thing he says in Romans 3.30. That is, through the faithfulness of Christ, we would receive the promised spirit. So it's vital to understand that the us, or the we, on behalf of whom Christ became a curse, is ultimately everybody Gentiles and Jews Paul relates the same narrative in Galatians 4 3 especially really really 4 3 to 7 with an emphasis on the Jews as Here his emphasis is on the Gentiles taken together. We have all the nations including Israel being blessed we have the blessing being the spirit we have the spirit being the means of a shared participation with Christ, whereby these exceeding great and precious promises we have what? A partaking of the divine nature, as Second Peter 1.4 summarizes all of Paul's epistles. Taken together then, we have all the nations, including Israel, being blessed. Christ being made a curse for us, removed the obstacle out of the path of the blessing of Abraham coming to pagans, who otherwise would have to remain under the curse of the law along with Jews. And so the cross, at the cross, Christ became a curse. The message title tonight will be the curse and the cross, which removed the obstacle that stood in the way and stood in the pathway of the blessing coming to not some Gentiles, but the Gentiles even as it comes to the Jews and the fullness of the Gentiles means that all Israel will be saved. So we're talking a little here with a little bit of a universal twist. So even if you're not adhering to what we would call a doctrine of universalism, you'd almost have to be not listening at all to not be a little more universalistic in your thinking, or at least seeing Jesus Christ's work on the cross having a little more effect and a little more widespread breadth than you thought before. If that's true, then my job is I've, I've been successful. That's all I can do, and that's the Holy Spirit anyways. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to look into the law of freedom, the perfect law of freedom. And we thank you, Father, that there's no dropping of the mic because this is endless. This never ends. There's always an attestation to your grace. It's never to a point where we've finished And we can say, now we see your totality of your grace and unconditional love. We're always learning more and more. So may we grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory both now and into the eternal state.